0: in a situation where it is very difficult to explain in a simple way all of the legal nonsense that has gone on related to the Columbus America Discovery Group's recovery of gold, the initial recovery of gold from the SS Central America. But We've set aside this episode to try and do that in a way that makes enough sense that people can understand why why the, the end of this, well, not the end of it, why the current situation here is so confounding, I, I think is the right word. Where we sort of left off, we were talking about the fact that that Tommy Thompson sort of gets frozen after he gets sued into this like bizarre position. And he's not a very accountable person when it comes to explaining what he has done. So what I thought we would do here is sort of run through what the different sources say, including it's the same Columbus monthly staff uh, article, this same uh, coastal Law Journal, uh, some of the the Ship of Gold in the Deep Blue Sea book, and I thought we would try and explain a little bit of that before we get deep into court documents. I don't know that getting deep into these court documents is going to make a lot of sense to people because um, it is maritime law, and you and I have stated in the past that like maritime law is some of the more confusing. Logic path to follow, because it doesn't deal with things in in the exact same way that you would that you would think. Um, now, I will go ahead and tell everybody that a lot of this is the reason we're doing this the way we're doing it, so people can access it. A lot of this is behind paywalls, and it's actually pretty confusing, just from the perspective of different people report different amounts and different rulings. Uh, we're going to try and untangle that in this episode and and give people a, a good idea of what's going on here. I think the best place to start is, let's explain from a, like the civil perspective, what happens with all these insurance companies. Do you think that's the best place or you no? Know?
1: I think that that would be the first place to start. The only other thing would be before... Uh, he had recovered anything, they were seeking rights.
0: Oh what do you mean? Ahead of
1: the... Yeah. Ahead of uh like at least, you know, proclaiming it, uh there was some action in uh the Virginia
0: Talking about in the Norfolk court case?
1: Yeah, where they were basically uh basically he was given access Uh, Actually, it comes up that he he was given, like, a, uh, I guess, latitude, longitude uh, coordinate sector that was his to explore, right? Yes. Uh, By the court. And then uh, initially he was, like, on the wrong ship, right? And then I think there had to be an addendum to it uh, to extend and include the area where the actual Central America was after Correct. they had been on the the Galaxy Two for 115 days, something like that happened. I, I read it. It was. Uh, it seemed kind of not important at the time because, I mean, it was important for them, but for me, I was thinking, well, as far as this goes, I, to my knowledge, there's never been a challenge to any of that stuff. So this is just, it's just occurrences in court where. Eventually, while they're out on the ocean, uh, you know, they're using different hypotheses and whatever, you know, scientific method the guys on the ships have come up with to try and find the most likely place they're going to find the shipwreck under the ocean. At the same time, or shortly thereafter, they are also like filing petitions with the court for like rights to keep other people out of where they're trying to search.
0: The theory that they applied all this—did you follow all of that part? By the way, here the Bayesian search theory, like it's the idea of. Oh, like,
1: you're you're talking about about uh, not the court part. You're talking about what the scientists were doing.
0: Well, I'm I'm talking about how it all ties together. From the perspective of the court, they were basically saying, All right, you get pieces of what you did. Uh, and and that is it it never gets challenged. It it actually doesn't really come up till about two thousand thirteen that other people are gonna try and do what Tommy did. Is that where you're headed with that?
1: Um, I was just going to say that because the insurance companies start post the recovery. insurance, the, yeah, the insurance company claims start after that. And to my knowledge, but for the initial uh, filings with the court with regard to like uh, claiming areas, uh, and I assume they did it by, like I said, latitude and longitude, to, to coordinate sectors. Um, I'm not familiar with anything before he gets back with the gold and the insurance company starts, the insurance companies start filing civil claims to uh, get the gold.
0: Got it. I got you. Well, so we're going to pick up, so everything's recovered in, in 1988 to start with. And then Tommy Thompson's life starts to just become more and more reclusive. That's where we left off. He was sort of frozen. What he was doing in there is uh, one of the articles described him as being constantly in motion. And that's a pretty accurate depiction. And that's from 1989 until about 1996. But he's not giving a, a lot of the expected like interviews and sit-downs with the press from 96 to 2000. In 1990, 1991, and 1992, he kept trying to get back to the Central America to recover additional gold. And they also recover hundreds of artifacts during this time. All of these things have to be cataloged and preserved. So Tommy can be found down in Florida under this new company, Omni Engineering. Now, it's a company that Tommy is in charge of and he technically controls, but the overall ownership of that is murky. And and that's one of the problems that we're going to run into in this episode is Tommy keeps things murky. Now, the company is developing newer and better versions of Nemo and from what is being used in 88 and then again in 1990, 91 and 92, this Nemo, the, the ROV that he has developed for all of this is, which is a remotely operated vehicle. It is getting better and better, but it's, it's, It's becoming the focus for Tommy. Now, from being down in Florida, he would head up to to Norfolk, Virginia. And it seems like there's just always court hearings going on in this case. And if you go through PACER, and I, I think you noticed this too, somebody was reading in PACER as I was reading in PACER. And then I think you said they were downloading things where you could go in. With Recap, and you could actually pull what they were also looking at, or they could pull what you were looking at, right?
1: Correct. Yeah, if you have that extension activated, you can. And so I was able to see what was uh, sort of of interest.
0: Right. So Pacer is where all sort of federal court documents go to live on the internet, and uh, it costs money to get in there and to to read different court filings. If you're under a certain amount it's forgiven. If you go over, I think it's 30 bucks. Um, if you go over that amount, uh, you end up paying like X per page. It can get expensive quickly.
1: I was going to say, uh, yeah, I, I would, it's a great source of information because these are documents straight from federal court. Everything, I believe every single filing from like 2013 forward is on there. But, uh, when you go on there, uh, you need to keep track of what you're doing because you can spend a lot of money really fast. Yes, you can. Um, Um, Because even the searches (laughs) cost money. And that's just my personal disclaimer because, you know, we brought up the source. It's a great resource, but you got to keep up with what you're doing.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So to summarize what's happening in terms of the court documents here. So starting in 1990, U.S. District Court Judge Richard Kellum, he rules... Uh, fairly consistently, that the Columbus America Discovery Group is entitled to the bulk of the SS Central America's treasure under the maritime law of fines. But the insurance companies aren't happy with this. So every time there's a ruling, it's not just that there's a motion and a ruling, there's also an appeal, a review, a request for reconsideration, a petition. So with every new motion, every new hearing, every new appeal, every new court appearance, the legal bills in this case are just going through the roof. Tommy doesn't trust the lawyers. So every time something like this is going on, he leaves what he's doing with Nemo and he leaves what he's doing with the Central America and Omni Engineering, and he's going to attend... These hearings, He's reading every page of every brief. And he's also, according to some of the investors, he's, he's in, like inserting himself into the writing and to the understanding and the responses of everything. By 1995, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals upholds Kellum's findings. And this gives Tommy some confidence in what's going on. The quote that's pulled from here is, we cannot imagine anyone demonstrating more diligent skill and energy than Columbus America has shown here. Its efforts provide a standard against which all of the others should be judged. So they're very complimentary of what's happening. So this sets the stage for Judge Kellum to issue a final ruling. Kellum awards Columbus America 92.2% of the commercial shipment gold recovered to that point, and 100% of future recoveries, including a 15-ton army shipment that Tommy insists is still buried beneath the wreck. Judge Kellum also put Tommy in charge of marketing the gold, although the federal court retained an ultimate authority over approving or disproving this plans this ruling gets widely widely publicized and it raises the hopes of all the recovery limited investors that they're about to see a return on what they've been doing. But you have to understand, this is unfolding from 1988 to 2000. It takes years. And finally, in mid-1998, the investors decide that they're going to do something about this. Uh, one of the things I've discovered is That if you read short versions or summaries of this, that people have stuck into articles in different places, I think even the Wikipedia and maybe one of the books, um, you don't get a full feel for what's happening in some of the legal morass here. And you're going to have to help me with this because I know that you're a little more familiar with some of this paperwork. We've read thousands and thousands of pages on this particular uh, court case.
1: We have, uh, and one of the things that I've noticed over the years of doing this type of research is, like, there are some of the most page-turning, um, anticipation-making uh, storylines you can read can be found in a Court of Appeals opinion. Yes. Because it's up and then it's down and it's for the defendant and then, or I guess the appellant and then the appellee, right? Um, They go back and forth with these intricate explanations of things, right? Yeah. Um, And I never realized how entertaining such dry uh, storylines otherwise could be. Did you?
0: No, and you know, I almost missed bits and pieces of it and I did I realized that other people were missing it too and then you were mentioning things that like I was like wait a second, what? It's it really is like a soap opera.
1: It really is. Um and a lot of times uh now most of the time and you know, it is a court document filed with the courts and for the most part that is what I use as a source whenever possible, when we're talking about anything to do with any sort of uh, true crime case. Right. Yeah. Uh, to me, it's the, at least in my opinion, it's the most reliable source there is. And you will find a lot of mainstream media narratives are derived from some version of this original source. Right. Right. So while it may be wrong in, in, a regard somewhere, it's officially wrong, right? <laughs> because this is how um, the adjudication of the case went, uh, especially if it's a court of appeals document, because that means it has gone all the way through the process at um, the district court level or the lower court level. And this is the second group of judges taking a look at a case, right? Yes. And so um, it's actually like a really good source anytime you can find one Um, now so on this particular uh, case so this was actually argued before the fourth circuit on june the 5th 1991 and decided august twenty sixth of 1992 so that gives you an idea of where we're at in time right central america the ss central america its location was determined um after being unknown since it sank in 1988, right? Yes. And so the 1987 number on the initial civil cases, it has to do with that initial court action where Tommy Thompson was uh, seeking to have some exclusions to uh, coordinate sectors of the ocean that he was trying to find uh, the shipwreck, right? And yes. so in 1988... Uh, the Columbus America Discovery Group officially finds um, the SS Central America that had sank in a hurricane on September 12th in 1857. It was 8,000 feet below the surface and 160 miles off the Carolina coast. Right? Right. Okay. So um, we kind of talked in depth about how Tommy Thompson uh, lived out his dream after – working really really hard to make it happen just to recover uh, some of the shipwreck the gold in the shipwreck and come back to shore with a bunch of insurance executives in their suits with their briefcases and their hands out filing uh, 37 initial complaints uh, ultimately 39 complaints from insurance companies right so a Uh, In the lower court, a 10-day trial was held, and the court awarded Columbus America the golden treasure from the SS Central America. So Columbus America is the company set up that Tommy Thompson is operating under, right? Right. Okay, so the lower court uh, awarded Columbus America the entirety of the treasure, It found that the underwriters of the 39 insurance companies uh, that had filed suit upon Tommy's return to shore after, you know, uh, finally finding the wreckage. The lower court found that the underwriters had abandoned their ownership interest in the gold by deliberately destroying documentation associated with it. So, In addition uh, to—actually, we didn't even get into this because it was a little bit crazy, but in addition to the insurance companies that immediately immediately filed suit, there were also a number of interveners who, like, were getting in on the civil action, so to speak. Yes. And it included not only the insurance underwriters— There was an heir to the Miller Brewing fortune. There was a Texas oil millionaire, an Ivy League university, and an order of Catholic monks.
0: The Capuchins.
1: (laughs) Which, so all of these people are involved in the civil action. Again, like I said, this was traumatic. Okay, this was a huge, huge problem. So on top of these 39 insurance companies, you've got these other interveners. Okay, and so the uh, lower court, decided that Columbus America and, and Tommy Thompson, his you know gang, they should get all of it. The uh insurance com- insurance companies had missed out because they didn't have proper documentation and the rest of the interveners the lower court said showed no evidence that the Columbus America Um, That they had any interest in the work Columbus America had done in finding the SS Central America to locate the wreck. And therefore, they were were denied, you know, any any sort of uh, recovery. Right. Right. Like you said, the insurance companies, the interveners, the other side, they weren't happy. And so they took it to uh, the Court of Appeals. This is the Fourth Circuit, uh, because the initial filings were done in Virginia And during the appeal, the Court of Appeals found that the evidence was not sufficient to show that the underwriters took an affirmative action in abandoning the interest that the companies had in the gold. They also found that once intervention was allowed, uh, the district court abused its discretion when they allowed the joinder of the sort of... I don't know ragtag gang of <laughs> interveners,
0: <The> additional parties
1: <laughs> to jump in on the bandwagon. The point that was happening was the judge was the judge was sort of like, well, whatever, but like we're not delaying the trial because of this. So you're gonna, you know, if you're gonna join, join, but it's still starting, right? Yeah. And so uh, the point of contention for the other interveners was like, hey, we didn't get to get all the information we needed right? And so uh, the appeals court, they found that that was an abuse of the lower court's discretion. They reverse the decisions that have been made by the lower case, and they remand the case uh, for further proceedings to follow the instructions as laid out by the appeals court, right? Right. Court of Appeals establishes that There were over 400 passengers and approximately $1.6 million of 1857 valued gold, right? Right. And that excluded all the passenger gold. But, um, you know, ultimately, the ship goes down, 425 people lose their lives. All the women and children, however, are rescued. And in the meantime, there are hundreds of bags of mail that were lost. All this gold was lost. You know, it was a devastating event for everybody involved, but all these years later, it becomes this, like, project of a lifetime for Tommy Thompson and his group of cohorts, right? Yeah. So the infamy... Of the boat sinking back in 1857, uh, it was actually used in the court case because the time and place we are in the United States, the sinking of the boat made the news. And so several weeks worth of newspapers around the country covered the disaster. Because of that, while people were mourning the 400 people that had lost their lives, they also covered this. Large amount of gold that had been lost, and what the possible serious implications financially would be from that loss, right? Yes, um, and so through those, uh, that coverage, which was it was a unique situation, kind of, right at that time because uh, there was widespread word of this uh, ship sinking which it was sort of a new thing, right? For everybody to know about it relatively fast. And by that, I mean, you know, it wasn't instantaneous. It took some time, but it went out and they were able to present where the commercial shipments of gold on the ship had been advertising in the papers that they would pay off the commitments of... The passengers on the ship, if they were to provide proper proof of their loss. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. And so, approximately one third of the treasure had been un- underwritten by New York insurers. And then there was also some underwriting done by London insurance companies in London. Right. And the indication from the media at the time in 1857, most of the claims that were made were promptly paid off by the underwriters. I don't really know how they could determine that, but at least there wasn't an issue with them not being paid, right? Correct. That wasn't covered. So, um, under the applicable law, then and now, once the underwriters paid the claims made upon them by the owners of the gold, the treasure became theirs. So essentially the underwrite uh the appeals court is saying that through this media that they see uh having reimbursed the original owner for what they lost they now were entitled to receive anything that had been retrieved. The appeals court goes on to talk about a little bit about, you know, how Two weeks after the disaster, the underwriters were negotiating with the Boston Submarine Armor Company, trying to figure out a way to get the ship back up, right, after it had sank. And so... This is in
0: 1857, they're trying to do this.
1: Right. This is, like, right after it happens, because um, there's a lot of interested parties, and, you know, there was a lot lost. So on... And then on June 28, 1858, two of the underwriters, which... Are named as Atlantic Mutual Insurance Company and Sun Mutual Insurance Company. They contracted with a Frenchman that was living in Pennsylvania with the hopes of him being able to salvage the gold. In that contract, um, the man's name was Brutus de Villaroy. Yeah. Okay. By means of, uh, it, states that Villaroy, by means of his in- invention of a submarine boat, and at his own expense, would raise the treasure and receive a salvage award of seventy-five percent. And this time, ta- at this time, though, no one was quite sure where the boat had gone down or how deep the water was, how deep of water it was in. At first, some estimated the ship was in only twenty-eight fathoms of water, which would be about one hundred and sixty-eight feet. When in fact, it was over eight thousand feet below the surface. And so obviously um, nothing came of those salvage attempts in the uh, late 1850s uh, and the issue of the lost gold, would it basically, it began to lie dormant at that point because the few efforts that were made didn't yield anything. They were literally, the gold was beyond their depth. Um, because yes. of the difference in like what was being speculated and what the reality was, even though that wouldn't be known until the 1980s. In the beginning of the 1970s, there were quite a few um, individuals that were discussing a plan to explore and salvage the Central America, right? right. Uh, because the technology had been being developed And they were a lot of things that propel, especially this type of like deep sea exploration type things, they've got to focus on something to keep it driven, right? And this was very helpful for them to do. And so there were people that, you know, were treasure hunters, there were scientists that were wanting to make these breakthrough advances in the technology needed to do these deep sea salvages. And, you know, history has it that there are countless shipwrecks just waiting to be explored, right? And so uh, there were quite a few groups that said, hey, we're going to go after the Central America. You know, a few, uh, a little bit of research on the media at the time of the shipwreck, it it would be indicative that there was something of value that sank. The groups all had different opinions of, of where they thought they should be looking for the gold or for the ship and the gold. And then, so at least one group thought that they had found the ship in shallow water, 15 miles off of Cape Hatteras. Um, but that was at least a hundred miles from where the actual ship was. A number of the groups that were interested in exploring and eventually salvaging the Central America, contacted some of the various insurers who had underwritten the gold, which, again, would have been available in the newspaper media at the time the ship went down, and the would-be salvers hoped to receive a relinquishment of the insurer's rights to the property, or at least some form of salvage contract with the underwriters, and so there were some negotiations about that. Ultimately, there was nothing presented during the 10day trial that indicated that any actual contracts were entered into, nor was anything presented that would indicate the insurance companies that would have received the corporate rights from the companies back then if they didn't if they no longer existed. Uh, there was no information that any of them had relinquished their rights to the gold, right? Right, And so one of the groups that contacted several of the underwriters was the plaintiff Columbus America Discovery Group, the eventual salver. Columbus America asked the underwriters to convey to it any claims they might have regarding the gold, but that didn't happen. So another group that was interested in salvaging the gold was Santa Fe Communications, whose investors are now owned by plaintiff interveners Harry G. John and Jack R. Grimm. In 1984, Santa Fe paid plaintiff intervener Columbia University $300,000 for Columbia's Dr. William B. F. Ryan to conduct a sonar search over a 400-square-mile area of the Atlantic Ocean. During his sonar search, Dr. Ryan identified seven targets on the ocean floor. Of these targets, he found only one, target number four, to be a good candidate for being the Central America. Dr. Ryan felt this target is almost certainly the scattered debris of a shipwreck, and his report mentioned that further exploration of it would have been made but for gale force winds and seas. In conclusion, he told Santa Fe, you, Harry John, and Mr. Jack Grimm, have a likely candidate for further exploration." Santa Fe, though, did not further pursue the matter. And on December 31st, 1984, it transferred to a Catholic monastic order, the province of St. Joseph of the Capuchin Order, St. Benedict Friary of Milwaukee, the Capuchins, any and all rights and interests arising out of its undersea salvage operations. It now appears that target number four was indeed the Central America. So that helps to explain some of this intervening, right? Well,
0: it it goes a little further, but I have to say, why on earth would you give up the rights to something to an order of monks?
1: Um, I think at this point in time, based on sort of what had happened, I feel like (laughs) they could have just thrown it in the air. Because, I mean, they were basically saying there's no way anybody's ever going to get to this.
0: Yeah, I think that was the idea that they had, but right.
1: but it but, seemed like a nice thing to do, right? Uh,
0: it kind of seems mean to me in a way. Uh, I, I follow what you're saying about like it could be seen as a nice gesture, but, right? But it
1: was completely. I, I don't feel like there was um, any merit in the gesture, right?
0: No, there um, wasn't. Do you, so, you, are you gonna keep going to keep going? Do you get to Tommy here? Right?
1: Yes. Is exactly. that okay?
0: Yeah, 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 no, it's fine. I, I thought that's where you're it, but I wasn't sure.
1: Well, I just I felt like this was the best way to to give a summary directly from the facts of like what started all this,
0: right? and how ridiculous it all is.
1: Right, and so you know, keep in mind, none of these people were on the boat where Tommy had been, you know, exploring and trying to find uh, the the. SS Central America, right? Yeah. These these are all the people that were standing there with their hand out when he got back to shore. Right. Okay. So the contract between Santa Fe and Colombia provided that Colombia would be able to freely publish the results of the Sonar survey, but only after keeping such results confidential for a year. Shortly after the survey. Columbus America President Thomas Thompson began contacting Dr. Ryan and others at Columbia and Santa Fe in an attempt to learn the results. Over a two-year period, Thompson and Dr. Ryan had a number of conversations about the techniques for identifying sonar images on the ocean floor, but the latter only believed that Thompson, who was associated with the prestigious Battelle Memorial Institute, was interested in this information from a scientific standpoint. On February 12th, 1986, 86, Thompson wrote Dr. Ryan and requested certain sonar photographs taken during the survey. The letter also stated, I'm submitting this order primarily out of personal interest. I have a personal source of funds available for data collection and correlation type work. I'm also interested in the techniques for separating anomalies from their environment and in the processing of specific anomalies to determine their character. Dr. Ryan passed along Thompson's request to Columbia, which agreed to provide the information. As a condition, though, Columbia told Thompson that since the data you requested is not in the public domain, we would require your agreement that any photocopied records or computer tapes you receive would be for your sole use and would not be reproduced for others. Thompson agreed to this condition, but went ahead and placed the information he received into Columbus America's files. Uh in 1987, after much effort and expense, uh the Columbus America believed it had found the Central America. Uh thus, on May 27, 1987, it filed in the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia an in-rim action against the wreck, alleging that under the law of fines, it was its finder, or alternatively, under the law of salvage, its salver. Columbus America then asked for and received on July 17, 1987, a preliminary injunction enjoining the other would-be salvers from operating within a specified area, injunction box number one of the sea. Injunction box number one covered an area which was approximately 30 miles from Dr. Ryan's target number four. Is that, are you following all that?
0: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay.
1: After receiving this injunction, Columbus America spent two years attempting to salvage the wreck they thought was the Central America. This time was also spent battling the other would-be salvers in court. Plaintiffs recovered several artifacts as well as a good mini lump of coal. But at some point they recognized that they were salvaging the wrong ship. They then began to look at other likely targets, and eventually they discovered the right ship. Thus, Columbus America requested the court to grant them, by permanent injunction, exclusive control over the area around this new find, and this was done through an order entered on August 18, 1989, injunction box number 2. Within the area of the injunction... <laughs> Box number two was Dr. Ryan's target number four. Since 1989, Columbus America, through its invention of the submersible robot, which can pick up objects ranging from small gold coins to a ship's anchor weighing thousands of pounds, has been salvaging objects left on the ocean floor by the Central America. Undoubtedly, its major interest is in recovering the gold, And so far, several hundred million dollars worth present value of gold coins, ingots, and bars have been recovered. It is estimated that the total haul may be worth up to one billion dollars.
0: And they're not talking about just what's been recovered at this point, they're talking about what's there and what will be recovered in the same manner over time.
1: Correct. So, on September 29th of 1989, many of the original underwriters of the gold, plus the superintendent of insurance of the state of New York for several insurance companies now defunct, filed claims with the district court asserting that they were the proper owners of the gold. After this extensive discovery was had and the case was scheduled for trial beginning April 3rd of 1990, three days before trial... John and Grimm moved to intervene, as did Columbia two days later. The interveners claimed that Columbus America must have used the information from Dr. Ryan's sonar survey in locating the Central America, and thus they wished for a percentage of the recovery. Two weeks earlier, John had bought back for $10 any claims the Capuchins would have on the Central America, When Santa Fe had originally donated their rights to the monks in 1984, the Capuchins recognized the gift as worthless, and John did nothing to enlighten them on the discovery of the ship or the upcoming trial. After later realizing what John was up to, though, the monks must have protested, and on April 10th, both John and Grimm signed an agreement with the Capuchins, giving the order one-third of any judgment they, John or Grimm, would recover such an interesting thing happening there right
0: you got a bunch of monks that now want to be part of a gold recovery lawsuit from a (laughs) treasure from 1857 oh my i just don't even know how to tell people how awesome this is
1: well i mean and you know like i said they they were like oh thanks for this like worthless gift you found you know a billion dollars worth of gold, 8,000 feet under the sea, right? Right. (laughs) It's worthless. Um, So the district court at that point in time, they allowed John Graham and Columbia to intervene, but they didn't permit discovery. The court wanted the trial to be on time and proceed as scheduled. Earlier in uh, the pretrial motions, the court had bifurcated the trial, so that the first part would concern only whether Columbus America was entitled to finder or salver status. And if the district court found that the insurance companies had somehow abandoned the gold, Columbus America would be considered its finder and thus its owner. On the other hand, if the underwriters had not abandoned the gold, they would still remain its owners and Columbus America would be its salver. If the latter scenario were found to be true, a second phase of the trial would be necessary wherein the court would have to determine what each underwriter had insured and the amount of the Columbus America Salvage award because the trial had been bifurcated, the interveners wanted their their claims adjudicated after the finder salver issue was decided. The court though. Would allow intervention only if the would-be interveners agreed to have their claims adjudicated at the same time as the finder-solver issue. That is the trial beginning the next day that they are trying to get in on this, right? Right. Right. So the trial did begin on schedule. It lasted 10 days, and it was apparently a huge deal. I don't recall any of it, but it made natural, it had national attention from the press. Um, over the course of the trial, many witnesses appeared, and there were hundreds of exhibits that were entered into evidence. And then they began their wait for a decision. So on a- August fourteenth, nineteen ninety, um, the court found that the Columbus America uh, on the, they found for Columbus America on all the issues, dismissing all the claims of the underwriters. Uh, Columbia, John, and Graham, Columbus America Discovery Group versus the Unidentified Wreck and Abandoned Sailing Vessel. Um, on the finder-salver issue, the district court held that the underwriters had abandoned the gold, and thus Columbus America was its finder and sole owner. The court based this finding of abandonment primarily on the supposed fact that the underwriters had intentionally destroyed any documentation they had once uh, concerning the case. And as for the interveners, the court found that they had failed to prove that the information furnished to Thompson could have assisted in locating the ships, that Columbus America used this information in any way, or even if the information was of any value and was used, that any such use would entitle them to a share in the recovery. This appeal is obviously the underwriters and the interveners asking the appeals court to take a look at the lower court's decision. Correct. They go on. Go
0: ahead. I was just going to say, do you want uh, uh, do you at least uh, this episode is going to get long if we go too far? What direction are you headed here? Are you headed towards the findings, or do you want to explain Salvage versus Finder's Law? Or do you want any assistance with either one of those things?
1: Well, I, f- I felt I felt like this was the most interesting.
0: It is. It's one of the most important elements of all of this because it kicks off the next phase of of where this goes.
1: Right. And uh, so here's here's, to be completely honest, um, I'm reading the opinion because it the ends and outs of this are very particular.
0: You can get lost in the details here and you can say something that completely changes the meaning of what's happening.
1: Right. And so to me, being just a person who, I mean, I would never even think about any of this stuff. I didn't actually see sort of I didn't see the historical value of doing this on our show. I saw the value of like what we're going to talk about like present day, right? But the historical part of it is so fascinating once you really get a spin on it, right? Yes. I really want to explain this, and the reason I'm sort of reading almost word for word is because the intricacies are just so... Apparent. It's hard to
0: paraphrase it. Yeah, it, it, once you paraphrase it, honestly, you lose a lot of the meaning and you lose a lot of that intricacy that you're pointing out.
1: Well, and I and I have to say in researching the salvers versus finders to me it as far as I'm concerned, those would be the same thing. <laughs> right. And that's not the case at all.
0: Right? It, well, not only that, the I I got to be honest, there's a major overblown reaction about that happened to this decision, don't you think?
1: Well, I'm not really sure uh, what you mean, but I don't feel like it changed it all that much, but it did take a whole completely different application, right? Yeah. Um, When you're talking about the possibility of like, you know, a billion dollars application that the appeals court applied and sent back to the lower court, you know, to be applied, to me, I think that it didn't really change the position Great. Um, I don't
0: think that it, I don't think that it does. I mean, so so the finder's position for Columbus Discovery, the Columbus America Discovery Group, it means that like they don't have to deal with anyone else. They just have to deal with their investors and sort of move on.
1: Right. So they would be the sole uh, beneficiary of all the work that they put into it.
0: Right. So historically, and I'm, I'm just going to I'm going to pull from this and help you out here because you did a really good job putting all that together. But I want to point like this is kind of wild. Um, historically, if if a company or a person, whoever, is a salver, and, and that word is S-A-L-V-O-R, meaning someone who has salvaged something. If if they are if Columbus America is found to be the salvers, technically, the original owners retain ownership of all the property they own they they own the gold they own all the artifacts related to it and and that becomes a really complex process if anyone is like if columbus america is the salver and all these owners of these 39 you know defendants and interveners and all this crap if they're involved it makes the process much more complex because then suddenly, Columbus America, while they are like the exact words of the court are they are entitled to a very liberal salvage award, they are at the behest of the owners of that stuff, whatever it is. Every artifact has to be accounted for, the gold has to be accounted for. Now, typically, that would happen anyways, but The minute that they're the salvers instead of the finders, they have to do it the way somebody else wants them to do it, which means the control is not with Columbus America. It stays with the courts and it stays with those deemed the owners. Now, the related legal doctrine that would be the other alternative here is literally finders keepers. In fact, the way the court says it is they say the common law of finds, which expresses the ancient and honorable principle of finders keepers. Now, traditionally, the law of finds applies to maritime property that's never been owned. If you found a whale or you found uh, like uh, ambergris or you found a shark or or whatever, if you're looking at seashells or something from the bottom of the ocean that's not a protected coral, Fines would apply there. Would you agree with the, that summary? Of I think those? so. Mm-hmm. So typically, admiralty courts favor applying salvage law rather than the law of fines. Now, the reason they do that is so that if there's any real discrepancies with the ownership of something, one, it protects the the salver, the person who's put forth all the effort. In this instance. Obviously, $13 million, tons of technology, everybody's time. Like, this story unfolding the way that it's unfolded took us a ton of time to explain that because of how complicated and complex a mission this was. And don't call Tommy Thompson a treasure hunter. He was an ocean explorer on a mission. And his mission was to prove that the SS Central America could be found and the contents of the SS Central America could be recovered. He is not a gold treasure hunter guy. When when this happens, and I'm going to let you do the finding or we'll do the finding together, what are you going to do? If he is the finder, if he's declared finders keepers on the SS Central America, he maintains his total control and his obsession with this thing. He does not have to answer to anyone else. He just has to document what he's done, take his money, and move on to whatever he's going to do next in terms of either the recovery of the rest of the gold from the NASA Central America or to another ship if he finds some other ship. Although I have to say I think this is the one, and once you do this, I don't know that you can top what he's done here. But he could continue to develop his uh, submersibles, uh, his remote operated vehicles and the technology surrounding it, he could potentially market that and patent it. But instead, this ruling here is going to determine if he can continue to have that control. Now, th- what they use is they use the words of Judge Abraham Sofer. And and this is why they say that the law of fines is disfavored. And then we'll get to the finding. And that'll be the end of this episode will be the finding. The law of fines is disfavored in admiralty because of its aims, assumptions, and rules. The primary concern of the law of fines is title. The law of fines defines the circumstances under which a party may be said to have acquired title to ownerless property. Its application necessarily assumes that the property involved either was never owned or was abandoned. To justify an award of title, albeit of one that is feasible, the law of finds requires a finder to demonstrate not only the intent, the intent to acquire the property involved, but also possession of that property, and that is a high degree of control over it. These rules encourage certain types of conduct and discourage others. A would be finder should be expected to act inquisitively to express a will to own by acts designed to establish the high degree of control required for a finding of possession. The would-be finder's longing to acquire is exacerbated by the prospect of being found to have failed to establish a title. If either intent or possession is found lacking, the would-be finder receives nothing. Neither effort alone nor acquisition unaccompanied by the required intent is rewarded. Furthermore, success as a finder is measured solely in terms of obtaining possession of specific property. Possession of specific property can seldom be shared and mere contribution by one party to another successful efforts to obtain possession earns no compensation. Would-be finders are encouraged by these rules to act secretly to hide their recoveries in order to avoid claims of prior owners and other would-be finders that could entirely deprive them of the property. So basically, they give a, a, a version of salvage, which is sort of the opposite of that in some ways. Um, but the idea is that people who own something don't have to talk about it or or seek out the owner. So in the in maritime law, it's sort of looked down on. And for that reason, we end up with a massive dissent in this case. I will say that ahead of time. But the ultimate finding here, Meg, is what?
1: The ultimate finding is that uh, Tommy Thompson was a salver and that uh, the... There's no indication that the insurance companies had abandoned their interest. The appeals court ultimately remands it back down to the lower court, and they make the determination there, right?
0: Yeah. So it goes back down to the lower court, and how it rolls out is Columbus Discovery Group is given 92.2 percent ownership as a salver's fee, basically. Right. From there, there are also certain provisions that they apply, which includes they can salvage more gold and and they will be the owner. So months before his death, that opinion kicks it back down to Judge Kellogg. And just months before his death in June of 1996... Callum restructures the ruling and I have to remember- To comply his,
1: with the court of appeals.
0: Yeah. So he restructures the ruling and he awards Columbus America 92.2% of the commercial shipment gold that had been recovered to that point, 100% of future recoveries, including a 15 ton army shipment that Thompson insists is within this wreck, And- Kellum puts Thompson in charge of marketing the gold, but the federal court retains the authority to approve or disapprove of what's happening. Now, Kellum's ruling is widely publicized because of all the attention this case is getting, and it raises the hopes of the recovery limited investors hoping that their long-awaited payoff is just months away. But... Tommy Thompson is still focused on doing other things, and this thing drags on and drags on. In mid-1998, his investors had had enough. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time. So I'm going to tell you guys uh, a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the, the CrimeXS code there. Um, you can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime XS. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show, and that code is CrimeXS at The first new advertisers that we have, and I've I've selected all of these guys, I've selected all of these advertisers, so the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now, Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality, all-natural, real food ingredients. All layered products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all-natural, whole food ingredients, and they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors, there's no colors or additives, and there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. They want me to talk about my love of coffee, but the truth is I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel. And he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so I saw this item, and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to layeredsuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be True Crime XS. Pretty much everywhere except for Laboratory Creations. If you use True Crime XS, that will get you at uh, Laird. will get you fifteen percent off. At some of the other places, it'll get you twenty percent off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is uh, the third one is Liquid IB. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making, but Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but it's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon-lime. I love all of these flavors, but... I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, White peach I use as a secondary flavor and lemon lime I leave here for my kids and my kids and my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50-plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV hydration multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code truecrimeaccess at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code truecrimeaccess at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. We are part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. It's so easy, it's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster, you can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guest. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best, I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place. And you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other ma- major destinations. Just go to zencastercom slash pricing and use my code TrueCrimeXS. And you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is True Crime XS. And it's time for you to share your story today. Uh, We are also adding New Era as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era Caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras. And then my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several New Eras as the centerpieces. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all topped with the same New Era ball caps. Uh, We love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing. Not to mention, New Era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylish accessory for your everyday ensemble and support True Crime XS. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash truecrimexs. You can also use the code truecrimexs at checkout. That's it. That's all you have to do. And that's 15% off your order using the promo code truecrimexs.